I love visiting Harvest. And uh, I want to thank all of you for the invitation you have given to me uh, to come and uh, to have the unspeakable privilege of offering the word of Christ to you and to me. And I want to bring you greetings from my wife, Lori, and all of your brothers and sisters in the offices at uh, Willow Grove and the members of uh, Calvary OPC, where I worship when I'm at home. Greetings from them to you in the Lord. I appreciate very much that you are just now and in recent times have been thinking about hospitality. It's a very important biblical subject. And while the, the sermon this morning isn't precisely on hospitality, it is related, and uh, when we have our Sunday school time, we'll hit that topic more directly. But I do want to say two things before we hear the scriptures this morning that will connect what I'm about to share with you and this important subject of hospitality. The first thing is this, that hospitality is nothing less than showing the gospel through the picture of having people into your home. And I say that because isn't that what Jesus has done for us? He has, through coming into the world and the work he did in the world, welcomed us into the home of his Father. And when we have people into our homes, we are saying to them, welcome to you, welcome to the gospel of Jesus. Share this meal in this time and, and come and find your rest and home in Christ. That's what we are saying. We can say it with words also, but when we practice hospitality, we are saying that to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters, to those who are not yet in the kingdom. And then let me also say this, that, that, and this is clear in the text, that Jesus, from the moment he entered the world, did not receive the hospitality he deserved. He was rejected. And he was rejected so that you would be accepted by his Father and welcomed to his table. Praise his name. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 2. The verses are 13 through 23. And let's all give careful attention to the voice of Christ here. Now when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, 
when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray for understanding, shall we? We thank you, Lord, for the scriptures that we have just heard. And we pray that you would come and fill our hearts with understanding and love. We pray that you would increase our faith and come and be our help, that we would hear the voice of Jesus today and believe it and live happily under it. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to guess that not many of you have been to South Sudan. It's just a hunch. I've been there, and I want to tell you about my time there. As some of you know, I spent some time in Uganda, serving the kingdom there with my family. And uh, while we were there, we visited a number of the uh, national game parks in that country, including one called Kadepo, located in the northeast corner of Uganda, bordering Sudan, what is now known as South Sudan. And during one of those Kadepo game drives, we approached the Sudanese border, we got out of our vehicles, stepped across into Sudan, and then quickly stepped back. So while it lasted only a few seconds, I can honestly say that I have been to South Sudan. It's impressive. I can say the same thing about Jordan, where I entered for three seconds in 1979, but I'm not going to tell you that story. Actually, I just did. There's nothing more to the story. It is possible for someone to read Matthew chapter 2 
and think that Jesus went in and out of Egypt for a brief time so that his father could say that his son did it and uh, fulfill a sentence of Old Testament prophecy. A brief moment across a national line so that something could be checked off of some kind of messianic bucket list. Don't think that way. What Jesus did was not an ordinary thing, a simple border crossing. It was an act of solidarity with broken people. And at the same time, it was an act of deliverance, at least in a symbolic way, a way that corresponds with the deliverance of Israel in the Exodus. If you sense your weakness this morning, your need for Jesus, your sinfulness, your brokenness, and if you love that Jesus did everything necessary to rescue you, then you should be deeply grateful that your Savior went to Egypt and then returned to Nazareth to do the will of his Father for your salvation. So this morning, I want us all to feel loved by God. I really do. Let's think about what he was willing to do, and indeed did do, to save us and to welcome us into his family and into his kingdom. I believe that it is accurate to say that Jesus was, for a time, a refugee in Egypt. He fled Bethlehem, and he resided in a foreign place. He was a refugee, and, and he was a refugee for us. He came into the world for us. He was chased from the city of David for us, and he lived in Egypt for us. This is how we are to think of, uh, of this point in our Savior's very young life. And I want us all to learn from the Holy Spirit today and to do so with this outline in view. First, the account itself, a brief review of what happened and then how this event fulfilled the prophetic statement in, in Hosea chapter 11. We're going to do that first. And then four lessons that emerge from the text that I hope will encourage us all as we think about how the Lord arranged things for you and for me and for all who call upon his name. So here are those four lessons. I'll give them to you now, then we'll talk about them later. Number one, Joseph's faith. We'll think about that a little bit. Number two, God's providence. The third lesson is this, Christ's humiliation. And then fourthly, your salvation. First, the story. King Herod was not an upright man. When he told the Magi that he wanted to know where the new king was born, he presented himself as a seeker looking to worship the child. 
He wanted no such thing. He did not see the birth of Jesus as a reason to bow and worship. To him, it was an incentive to murder. And murder he did. He was angry at the Magi. And he was angry at the thought of someone other than himself receiving homage to kings. And so he ordered that every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two be killed. His order was carried out. The children were put to death. And through this unspeakably wicked act, the word of God to Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Just think about that. This is why the angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream. He told him to rise, take his family to Egypt, and escape the wrath of the king. How long were they to remain in Egypt? He was not told. And in case he found it difficult to wait there and were tempted to return before it was safe, the angel said this, Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Joseph did what the angel commanded. And in this way, the word of the prophet was fulfilled. Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. It is in that short sentence where we find the meaning of Jesus' flight into Egypt. Hosea 11 is a swift statement of Israel's history. The exodus, the rebellion of the people in the land, the promise of exile, and then their return to their homes. All of that is there in those 12 verses, but it is the first verse only that appears in Matthew 2, a statement that connects Jesus with his mission as the true Israel of God. God rescued his people from slavery, didn't he? Through, through his deliverer Moses and by means of amazing works of power and of love for his people. He brought them into the land promised to their fathers. And they went into that land with instructions from the Lord. They were not to be like the people who lived in Canaan. They were not to worship their gods or worship the true God by their methods. They were to keep and remember the Sabbath and obey all the commandments given to them by the Lord. They were to be faithful to the one who rescued them. It was their duty to live happily under all of God's commandments. But they failed. They left Egypt, they entered the land, and rebelled against the Lord. 
They worshiped false gods, and they despised the will of the one true God, the one who chose them, not because they were great or many in number, but because he loved them, and he loved them with a fatherly love. It was their place as God's beloved son to leave Egypt, enjoy the land, and live for God. They left Egypt, they entered the land, they did not live for God. But what Israel failed to do, Jesus succeeded in doing. He went to the place of slavery, as Moses did. He left Egypt, he entered the land, and he remained faithful his whole life. He did not worship false gods. He did not worship the true God in false ways. He kept and remembered the Sabbath. He did not despise the will of his Father. Jesus, at every point where Israel sinned, lived righteously before the people and before his Father in heaven. Here's another way to put it. Israel, as God's son, entered the land and abandoned the Lord. Jesus, as God's son, left Egypt, entered the land, and was faithful to the Lord all his days. The exodus and the call upon his delivered people had meaning beyond its own history. And that meaning is found in Jesus, faithful Israel, the one who entered the world of slavery to sin and delivered his people from that slavery by obeying God's law perfectly and then laying down his life for his own people. And you, brothers and sisters, you are his people. Hallelujah. The account helps us in many ways, and I want to give you four. So let's think of these four things. First, let's think about Joseph's faith. Imagine what it must have been like for him. He took this difficult journey to Bethlehem with Mary, who was expecting, only to find that there was no proper room for them there. So the couple stayed in, in quarters where animals were kept. Mary gave birth and placed her son in the place where animals took their food. A good bit of time had passed when an angel spoke to Joseph again. But surely he, he had the memories of this hard journey and the difficult circumstances he found when he arrived in Bethlehem in his mind. He might even have wondered what could be worse than that experience. And the angel told him, Joseph did not doubt that the message he received was from the Lord. He did not question the plan that was delivered to him. He might have suggested easier ways to preserve his family. Herod was going to die soon. Why not speed up the program? 
Take him now, Lord. Save lives. Can't we just simplify this and move on with life? The same could have been said of Pharaoh in Moses' time, by the way. The Lord could have just cut him off, cut his people off. And that's what he said, actually. But he also said this, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. We don't know what Joseph thought, but we do know what Joseph did. He left immediately at night and began the difficult 75-mile journey to the border of Egypt. When I tell people that in Uganda we had to travel 75 miles to get to the nearest grocery store, I do get some sympathy. Not much, actually. <laughs> A little bit. And that's good, because I don't deserve much. It's a ways to go, I suppose. But we had a car, and we did not travel at night. And we were not fleeing for our lives from a tyrant who was slaughtering little boys. Joseph received the message and neither questioned nor complained. He did what he was told to do. And let me add that while he was in Egypt, he waited patiently for the command to return. I wonder if that was hard for him. How did he spend his time there? We don't know. Martin Luther thought that he preached the gospel to the Egyptians. Maybe he did. What we do know is that he did not begin his journey back until he was told that it was safe and that Herod was dead. Joseph is a great example of faith, isn't he? It's not the main point of the passage, but it is a point, I believe, because it's good for us to imitate the faith of those who went before us. Don't you think so? You read Hebrews 11, filled with those names. Hebrews 13, 7 comes to mind as well. And while God has not called you to run to Egypt, as far as I know, and uh, you ought not to seek that calling or any other direction through dreams. He has called you out of slavery. He has brought you into his family. And he is calling you right now to trust him and to trust the word he has given. Not images in the sleeping mind, but words on the inspired page. Believe what he has said. God wants you to trust in his son and to show your faith through love and obedience to his commands. Is there a particular area of obedience that comes to your mind right now? Some struggle you're having? Some issue that maybe you're putting off, some sin pattern that has held you in recent days, 
Go to Christ. Trust in Christ. Live for Christ. Ask him to give you the strength you need to be faithful. Joseph trusted the Lord. And he was sure that God always knows what is right and always knows what is best. Did he understand God's intentions in this? The big plan? We don't know how much he understood. But it doesn't matter whether he did or not. He acted in faith and he followed what he knew to be right because God told him that it was right. And God has told you what is right in his word. So respond well, brothers and sisters. And uh, like Joseph, do not delay in your response. The second lesson is this, God's providence. God governs and preserves the world in all of its doings. This is the teaching of Scripture. We don't usually see the design, but we know there always is one. God plans. He actively executes His plans. His plans are always good, and His plans always come to pass. Do you believe that? It's a precious truth, isn't it? And sometimes we, we do get a little taste of how things fit together. We see the pieces. We see the, the outcome. And we discover what God intends by arranging the affairs of the world in certain ways. And, and we can see this in certain events in Scripture and the events surrounding the, the birth and the young life of Jesus Christ are good examples. The census that brought Joseph to Bethlehem was ordained of God for the purpose of fulfilling his word that Jesus would be born there. A king responded with terror to the, to the news that a rival king was born. God was governing and using the wickedness of an earthly king to fulfill his promise to call his son, our king, out of Egypt. And then he ordered things so that his son would be spared. That's a marvel. It may seem selfish and even cruel that he would rescue his own son while allowing others to die and families to suffer. Why did he do that? He did that because the time for him to spare his son, or to not spare his son, rather, had not yet come. But that time did come when God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all and gave us all things. That's Romans 8, 32. Now I want to suggest that this help you in two ways. The first is this, that God's act of sending Jesus into the world to be your Savior was a certainty. There was no way it wasn't going to happen. 
The surprises of the gospel narratives are to us. They're not surprises to God. As it was the Lord's will to crush him, Isaiah 53.10, it was also the Lord's will to send him and to send him at the precise time and in this precise way according to his own determination. Never think that God was just waiting and, and, and looking for the right opportunity to send his son into the world. That's the kind of thing you and I do. We watch, we wait, and if we are wise, we, we pick good times to do things, to say things. We sometimes pick wrong times. The birth of Jesus took place at the right moment. And it was right because God arranged everything. He was preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, as the catechism puts it. Isn't it wonderful to know that God has this kind of absolute influence over everything? It's everything. Is it beyond our understanding? Yes, but what a precious truth it is. His plan for sending his son was certain. And his plans for you are also certain. That's the second application here. And know this, brothers and sisters. His plans are always good. They're good plans. Do you rest in this and rejoice in this? I mean in both things. That God arranged everything so that Jesus would be the deliverer, the second Moses, I think we can say, and then that God arranges everything in ways that bless us, that bless us now, and will surely Bless us more as we are his children, as he will bless all who trust in him. Praise his name. The third lesson is this. We've learned about Joseph's faith, about God's providence in governing the affairs of this world. And now let's turn our attention to Jesus and his humiliation. This is a technical word that describes Christ's birth, Christ's life, and, uh, and also his death. We use the word differently sometimes. We use it as a, a synonym for embarrassment, don't we? I can't believe that happened. How humiliating. That's how we sometimes use the word. But we're meaning it differently here. The humiliation of Jesus was something uh, precious and something much different from that. And the best place to go for a description of this is, in fact, the Shorter Catechism. I want to read to you question and answer number 27. Listen to these words and uh, let them come into your heart. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Here's the answer. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born... And that, in a low condition, made under the law, 
undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. There's more to the story, of course, but that's the, that's the humiliation, humiliation of Jesus. This world that Jesus entered is under the curse of God. It is broken, and those who live in it are in trouble because of sin. It is a world of suffering and violence and hatred and injustice. All things, by the way, that Jesus experienced before his second birthday. But the Son of Man did not reject the world. He did not judge the world. He entered into it. He made this broken, miserable, sin-filled world a place that he called home. And it began in Bethlehem. He made this place his home. When Jesus said that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, what he said was true. And it was true at the very moment he came into the world. Not that he didn't lie down, but that he was born in a temporary, unsuitable place with his head resting in a manger. And then he was not even able to stay in Bethlehem, but had to migrate with his parents to Egypt. What a precious thing it is to know that Jesus came into the world to be with sinners, to share in the miseries of life in a sinful world, and then to bring sinners to a place of union with him. Think of his flight into Egypt in this light. He fled to the place of slavery as an expression of union with those held in bondage. He came out of Egypt as our deliverer and continued his work of obedience to his Father's will. Despised, rejected, falsely accused, yet faithful to his calling. Ultimately, he gave his life and then rose from the dead, praise the Lord, and took his place at the right hand of the Almighty. Jesus did not stray from his mission, even though his mission was to live a life of poverty and suffering, a life he did not know before he came. What was it like for the Son of God to come and submit to all the limitations and stresses and afflictions of fallen life. We don't know, but we rejoice that he came. Do you rejoice that he came? You should rejoice because he came for you, for your salvation which is our final lesson. It seems like a lot of trouble for the Lord to go through for people in rebellion against Him. 
Well, yeah, it does. I don't know if trouble is the right word, but whatever you want to call it, what God was willing to do to save and welcome you was amazing. And and he did it out of love. He loves you. He wants you to be with him. And so the father sent his son. And the son came. And he lived for you. And gave his life for you. This is the point of the incarnation. And of everything else that followed from it. Here are the first words that Joseph heard from the angel. This is Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There it is. First words to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. He wanted to save you. He wanted you to be forgiven. He wanted you to be joined with him. He wanted you to have everything you need to live for him. He wanted you to be with him when all things are made new and the effects of sin will be no more. And you will be with him if you believe in him. So Jesus is our refugee. But he is our refugee who who invites you to find your refuge in him. He fled Bethlehem for Egypt. You flee from your sin to Jesus. If you are a believer, then rejoice and keep fleeing. If you do not know Christ, then come to him. He will not reject you. He will welcome you as he welcomes all who call upon him. I want to close the message by reading something from a man named J.C. Ryle, 19th century preacher. If you've read him, you know that he is very quotable. And uh, what I want to read is one of his best-known statements. So if you recognize it, enjoy it again. If not, listen carefully as Ryle calls you to, to, to go to Christ and find your refuge in him. Here's a description of what Ryle called saving faith. Saving faith is the hand of the soul. The sinner is like a drowning man at the point of sinking. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ holding out help to him. He grasps it and is saved. This is faith. Saving faith is the eye of the soul. The sinner is like the Israelite bitten by the fiery serpent in the wilderness and at the point of death. The Lord Jesus Christ is offered to him as the brazen serpent set up for his cure. He looks and is healed. 
That is faith. Saving faith is the mouth of the soul. The sinner is starving for want of food and sick of a sore disease. The Lord Jesus is set before him as the bread of life and the universal medicine. He receives it and is made well and strong. This is faith. Saving faith is the foot of the soul. The sinner is pursued by a deadly enemy and is in fear of being overtaken. The Lord Jesus Christ is put before him as a strong tower, a hiding place, and a refuge. He runs into it and is safe. This is faith. Flee to the one who fled. Run to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Let us pray together. Our Father, thank you for sending your Son into the world to save us from our sins. Thank you for giving us a Savior who is willing to enter into the brokenness of fallen life, endure the miseries that are here, and conquer sin and hell and the devil and death itself for the everlasting blessing of your people. Help us to trust deeply in the work of our Savior. Help us to put away our sin more and more and to live in ways that honor you. We want to obey your word. We want to grow in holiness. We are so glad that you have not left us to labor in our own strength. So, Lord, come, sanctify us, and make us long for our Savior's appearing when all things will be made new. Hear us, we pray. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.